This is Get More Done, a You Can Book Me podcast, and I'm Ben, your host. Each month, You Can Book Me helps millions of people save time and get more done by automating their scheduling. Because of this, we wanted to understand and explore other aspects of productivity. On every episode, you will meet business leaders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and managers, and they will share how they help their teams and customers level up and how they are doing more with less. On this episode, I sat down with Mark Rabin. Mark is an author, speaker, consultant, and podcaster. His main focus is around the Japanese philosophy Kaizen, or continuous improvement. During our conversation, Mark explains why companies should adopt a Kaizen methodology and how they can set it up. Enjoy. Hey, welcome back to the Get More Done podcast, podcast all about productivity and just doing more with less. On today's episode, I'm sitting down with Mark Graben, the author, speaker, consultant, man of many trades, jack of all trades. So Mark, welcome to the podcast. Ben, hi, thanks for having me. Awesome. So what you may have uh, seen from our previous episodes is we start with an icebreaker question. So this this episode, we want to talk about if language wasn't a barrier for you because you're you know a traveled man where would in the world would you live right now and why um the right well the right now part of that makes me think because you think of covid times but i mean generally uh, a country that I've, I've visited five times in the last 10 years and i would love to spend some extended time living uh living there uh, is japan and currently language would be a barrier but um, but like you said, if language is not a barrier, I, I've I've only had 10 day stints in Japan and I realize I have this sort of maybe idealized outsider's view of, of the country. But I, I really would love to spend more time there. I have some friends who have lived for a year or two in Japan. And, um, you know, so maybe. Yeah, Japan is an amazing, amazing country. Great culture. Um, and the language barrier is not too tricky, but as you get more immersed, I'm, I'm sure it would be as you, you know, build your life there. Uh, what was one of your favorite favorite parts of, of all your trips to Japan? Well, so they were all work-focused trips because with the work I do, we spend a lot of time studying Toyota, uh, for example, as a, a company to try to learn from and emulate, whether it was in manufacturing where I started my career or in healthcare, where I've really focused a lot the last 15 years. So there's there's a lot to learn from the organizations there, but I just, um, I, 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 I love the food. When you're there as a visitor, as a tourist, you are spoiled. Um, you know the service, the customer service culture in Japan is uh, is so high um, and so accommodating. And like people, you know, people, you check into the front desk at the hotel, and you, you have to let them have your passport for a minute, and they have to go make a photocopy. And generally, the person behind the desk will like like run. And I'm like, uh, yeah, it's not that I'm not in that much of a hurry, but I think they, they just they don't want to waste your time. They um, are at least, um, you know, on the on the surface, uh, very, very welcoming and very kind. And, you know, I know there, there you know, there's there's a more complicated version of the story of, you know, uh, um, you know, Japan being such a homogeneous society and um, uh, sometimes not always truly welcoming to, to outsiders. But, you know, I, I don't mean to criticize, but. You know, um, I, I think being there and, and just I, I just enjoy the uniqueness of the country. And I've, I've found it very welcoming and just a, a very comfortable, interesting place to be, or at least being comfort, comfortable in my discomfort at times. Yes, right. <laughs> 
Yeah, that I have fond memories of Japan because that was my pre-pandemic trip. That was I got me and my mm. wife spent uh, spent a few days in Japan, like ten days, like you mentioned, and just amazing. I'll definitely be going back for sure. Um, awesome. So, so with with all that you're doing, I mean, you know, we talked a little bit: author, speaker, consultant, advisor, podcaster. How do you sum it all up, and how do you do all of that? <laughs> Um, you know, I'm fortunate to uh, be able to work independently. I started doing that back in 2010. So I do some work independently through my own company as a speaker. Um, you know, I've, I've written and now self-published. I've had a couple of books go through a publisher. My most recent book called Measures of Success. I uh, published it myself through my own company. Um, I do training and some solo consulting and things on my own. But then I, uh, I'm fortunate to partner up with a couple of different organizations. So one is a, a software company called Kinexus. Um, they are heavy users of uh, You Can Book Me um, with, within the team. That's how I learned about um, You Can Book Me. Um, a software company that I've uh, been an advisor to and sort of a part-time uh, team member as that company's grown over the last 10 years plus, um, have an ownership stake in, in the company. Continuous improvement software platform. And then there's a, a consulting firm uh, called Value Capture that I do a lot of um, subcontract work through in the healthcare improvement space. Um, so you know, I get the dabble. I'm fortunate. My wife has a, a great corporate career path that allows me to do some things that are a little riskier and I, I don't have to provide health insurance for us. <laughs> Yes. So I'm, I'm fortunate so, for that. Right. Yeah. Give you some, some room to explore all these great things. So one of, one of the aspects of your work is teaching about Kaizen. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a little bit more about that and how businesses and teams can use that method to improve their productivity? Yeah. Um, so Kaizen is a Japanese word that translates pretty directly to mean good change. Um, it's usually used in the context of um, continuous improvement in a workplace. It could be a personal philosophy that you apply in your own life. But you know, um, you know, there there are mentors of mine. Um, you've helped me learn that you know, in a lot of ways, kaizen is self-initiated. Like, what can you do to reduce frustrations in your work to make your work go more smoothly? Then you can also target that to what would benefit customers. You know, what would benefit the organization that you work for? So, you know, Kaizen is as much a mindset as it is a, a methodology. There are tactics and there are methods. You know, one of the key methods, one of the key tactics would be to not use a traditional suggestion box. Like, don't lock up people's ideas in a suggestion box that then maybe on a monthly or a quarterly basis gets reviewed by some committee or management team. Like, Kaizen is more... Uh, you know, participatory with you and your team and your direct frontline manager to identify problems and test solutions to those problems in a you know sort of incremental, iterative way. So this methodology applies. Uh, you know, the the roots would be maybe considered in manufacturing. Um, Kinexus is a software platform built on these Kaizen mindsets um, and, and methodologies. We practice what we preach internally. Like we are very focused on creating a culture of continuous improvement. And that starts with our CEO um, and, and the way he treats people, the way he listens, the way he empowers people to, to experiment and try new things. And then, you know, there's there's the broader, um, 
you know, kind of, again, like the, trying to create that organizational culture. So you can practice Kaizen individually or within a team, or I think there's greater effect when it's done company-wide. And, you know, one of the things I shared um, on my blog years ago, and I reshared with the 10th anniversary of You Can Book Me, was applying um, Kaizen, if you will, to some of my own meeting scheduling process. Like I'm in a lot of ways a solopreneur. I don't have a virtual assistant. I'm often scheduling meetings with people who do have administrative assistants. And I, I realized like a lot of my time was being consumed with back and forths about proposing meeting times and when are you free? And when are you free? And that, do- oh, that doesn't work for me now. And um, so you you can book me and I, you know, I can share more detail about this if you want. You Can Book Me has been uh, such a helpful tool for me in terms of saving time and just more managed, more smoothly managing meeting booking, whether it's for podcasts or for consulting or other stuff. And, and I think my use of it has created a, a good impression with people to say, oh, well, th- this guy, Mark, seems to practice what he preaches. Yeah. And it's great to see and, and awesome that you're, you know, you've been a customer of ours for so long and and have grown, grown with the tool, you know, alongside us. Mm-hmm. And great that you're practicing what you preach at, at Kai Nexus as well, because it's, you know, one thing to say, hey, you, sh- you all should be doing this, but if you're not doing it internally. <laughs> now, on, on that vein, how, how would a team get started with that Kaizen principle? Like, what, what are some early things that they could do to, to start for that continuous improvement? Yeah, I mean, the starting point, you know, when I've worked with organizations in different industries can vary a little bit depending on like what some of their history has been. Do they have a suggestion box? Is a suggestion box being used and is it effective? Usually not. And that's not the fault of the employees. That comes back to culture and leadership mindsets. So sometimes the first step is to maybe almost ceremonially tear down the suggestion box and reflect on what worked or what didn't work with that. I think an effective Kaizen methodology involves transparency. That could be as simple as um, you know note cards, uh, you know, pre-printed note card forms that go up on a bulletin board so that everybody can see the problems that are identified, the ideas, the things that are being tested to help prioritize and track and manage what's being done. A lot of organizations use software like Kinexus to help give web-based visibility to, to everybody in their team, especially when you have a multi-site, multinational organization. A bulletin board only gives so much visibility. So you've got to give people some mechanism for here's how we're going to uh, collect ideas and, and track them. But then really it's on leadership to, to encourage people. Like I found some very helpful questions to get started would be a question like, hey, what, what bugs you? What causes frustration in your day? And, and helping people learn the difference between like the, a workaround or a quote unquote band-aiding or a papering over of a problem. And really, you know, getting better at identifying um, sometimes the root of a problem. And, and that comes through practice, you know, make sure we're not just addressing the symptom of something, but encouraging people uh, to speak up, making it safe for them to do so, being welcoming, not being judgmental, not being negative. You know, the, the role of leader shifts from being, you know, like the decider to being more of a coach and facilitator to get people participating. So we can ask, what bugs you? Second question that pairs up well with that is, what can we fix so that we're not just running you know, uh, big, huge ideas uh, up the chain to the senior leadership team? A lot of it is very much focused on what can we do? What small changes can we make to our work? Um, there may be a time to reinvent 
the way we do our work, but just encouraging that participation, making it safe for people to experiment and, and making it safe to try things that don't work out is an important part um, of that mindset and that culture. And then giving recognition and celebrating when people are making an impact to their work, to customers, to patients, to the organization, you, you start getting a positive dynamic. You notice I said uh, recognition, not rewards. You don't have to pay people or bribe them or like financial incentives can very quickly get dysfunctional. That was one of the traps with the classic suggestion box system. But anyway, th those are, I think, a few of the key tips that I've seen help organizations get started. But then the, the, the final thing I'll add is that leaders can't just ask once. You can't just put out a memo or an email or give a speech once. You've got to ask people continually to identify problems, to think about possible solutions, to go and test them and evaluate them. And, and really, you know, with, within months, the, the culture can shift where now that becomes the default. People speaking up and being given permission and safety uh, to start working on improvement. Yeah. And, and it makes sense that it's a, a cultural thing because it's a self-fulfilling flywheel where it's like, as you start seeing these improvements, then people get more motivated to do it. But if it's, you know, not an actual loop, then the feedback goes in, nothing happens, then the culture mm -hmm. starts to disintegrate. That makes total sense. Yeah. There's, um, there's a, a professor at UT Austin um, who's done research on, um, you know, why people don't speak up in the workplace, why they don't uh, Whether that's with ideas, for example, a lot of uh, the one big factor is fear. They're afraid they're going to be blamed for the problem they're pointing out, or they're going to be um, ridiculed or punished, or if they don't have psychological safety. That actually the biggest factor of why people don't speak up is a different F word, uh, futility. I spoke up before, and it just wasn't worth my breath or time or energy. So why bother? And and that's sad. And that's where it has to start with leadership to try to break some of that negative cycle and say, it is going to be worth your while. Let's, let's build this culture of improvement. Yeah. And, and as you mentioned, maybe that comes in the form of changing the collection method from something that wasn't working or didn't working mm -hmm. to a whole new, new thing. Now on, on that, on that note, you know, with Kaizen being more of like uh, improvement is, is that the same as like lean operations as you explored with like researching Toyota and all the same thing? Mm -hmm. Or is it a bit different? I would say Kaizen is one of the core fundamental foundational principles of what we would call lean manufacturing or lean blank. Going back to what Toyota would describe as uh, the Toyota production system, or more broadly, they use a banner, uh, a label of uh, the Toyota way. And Toyota says the two Key pillars of the Toyota way are one, Kaizen or continuous improvement, two, a concept and a mindset that they either will translate as respect for people or respect for humanity. So I would say you can't have a quote unquote lean organization without Kaizen. You could use Kaizen practices without any of the other lean terminology or lean practices. I think creating a culture of continuous improvement is uh, incredibly powerful, um, whether it's within the context of Lean or Toyota or or not. Yeah. And have you seen any challenges that, that teams have have run into when trying to adopt these new these new processes and these new principles? Yeah. I mean, changing habits um, often on, let's say, the frontline managers or middle management, trying to change some of their habits of not jumping in with the solutions. Right. I mean, the, the, you know, people we, we, we don't want people making 
just making suggestions. That's one of the traps of the suggestion box. You're maybe literally jumping to solutions. And then in the Kaizen mindset, you're you're taught first to identify what the, you can call it, you know a problem or uh, an opportunity or a gap or an issue or whatever word you use, and first understand the problem because then there might be many possible solutions that you could consider, right? So suggestion box is based on here's a solution. Somebody says yes, no, approved, rejected. Where in Kaizen again, it's much more iterative. Where um, our focus is on solving the problem, right? So the team has an idea. The manager, like unless the idea is unsafe or wildly expensive or violates regulatory guidelines or something, like your your bias should be to let the team try and see. And um, that that's a habit that's difficult to break. Um, a lot of times uh, managers are used to being the boss or that's been the expectation in the organization to have all of the answers. And sometimes uh, one of the things managers, leaders have to work through is that they sometimes feel kind of ashamed of like, well, I, how do, I didn't know that problem was there and I didn't come up with the solution. When I think, you know, for one, like, you know, a manager is just one person. If you've got a team of 20 people, 20 people can come up with so many more ideas. 20 people can go and test so many more ideas. Like that scales well beyond um, what any, any one manager or leader could do. So Changing habits and coaching leaders through that is one of the challenges. Um, sometimes initially there, there's this big, huge flood of ideas, pent up sort of like, oh, people say, oh, no, no, now that you ask, uh, you know, sometimes people literally bring out a sheet of paper that they've been squirreling away ideas on. And so the, you know, up front, there's a need maybe to, 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 tri to triage and prioritize. But again, when you give people visibility on a bulletin board or in software like Kinexus, you're not forgetting about ideas. There's there's this list there of like, well, as time comes up during the day, all right, well, there's, okay, we're going to go work on that one now. Let's pull an ad hoc team together. Let's let's go test that improvement out. You know, I've, I've found like, you know, generally people have ideas. You just have to draw them out. And again, you have to make it safe for people to speak up and participate and try things. Now, there are some employees where maybe they've worked 30 or 35 years in a bad, if not toxic environment. It's going to take time to try to build trust in those folks. And some people, it might be hard for them to get over, you know, some of those wounds they have from, from the workplace. But, you know, generally speaking, I mean, I've, I've just seen this approach work um, so well in so many different settings. Kinexus has customers uh, in so many different industries, manufacturing, healthcare, service sector, uh, people in government, nonprofits use this Kaizen style of continuous improvement. You know, you, you're either continuing to work at it or you've given up. Those are about the only two states that you could be in. You know, the Kaizen fail. Well, I mean, like maybe you, you, you didn't figure it out and you gave up. So keep working at it. Right. Keep iterating, like you mentioned, and, and tweaking it as you're going. And and it's important that you you mentioned the not going to the solution right away of just saying let's in investigate the problem rather than it being this prescribed thing where it's like well no we're not going to do that rather than saying mm -hmm. what else could we do how else can we exactly. iterate on it and change yeah it. And, and one of those coaching questions of a leader might say let's say Ben you you come to me you identify a problem and I might ask well do you have any ideas of how we could address that and you might say well no and I might coach you to well you know go and think about it go talk to some of your coworkers. You know, instead of jumping in and saying, well, Ben, here's what I think you should do, because that doesn't develop 
your problem solving skills. So you've got to give people opportunity and and sort of you know co- coach them through it, um, give it, give it a try, and uh, that that really helps. And and I think a lot of organizations need to you know work on that safety of saying we can experiment, and if it fails, then it fails. But at least you know. So I think people are reluctant to explore things because of just the need for it to be perfect, or for it to be complete, or for it to be well rounded. Now, in in that framework, how how do folks kind of navigate that and, and build that into their their culture of making it safe for those experimentations? Is it something where you're saying, you know, what are we hoping to gain out of this experiment? What how would we know if it's a success? Or can you elaborate a little bit on how how folks are, are navigating that? Um, yeah, so the the kaizen card, if you will. Um, that I've used and um, shared with others and, 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 and you know, help people uh, put in place. Uh, my, my co-author, Joe Schwartz, and I wrote a book called Healthcare Kaizen, and we have a, a website, uh, hckaizen.com, where we've got free templates in either PowerPoint or PDF format. You can download them, you can use them, you can tweak them. But you know, I think you know, the basis of a card, like you know, a quarter sheet of paper, would have lines on it, you know, you know, what's the problem or the issue? What's your idea? What are the expected benefits of said improvement? So there are times or, you know, maybe the ideal would be able, you know, to measure the impact. If you know, we have an idea that we think is going to improve safety, do we have data like uh, injury rates, uh, lost workday rates? And can we look at, um, you know, the impact on a, me- a metric? If we say, well, we want to implement this because it's going to improve customer satisfaction. Um, sometimes you keep that on sort of a qualitative basis, and sometimes you can do a cause and effect of, well, making this change increased average customer satisfaction rates by 10%. Sometimes if you're doing a lot of improvements, you can't directly connect the dots from this improvement made this much impact. But directionally, you know, if we're making a lot of improvements, we should see improvement in our core business metrics, our balanced scorecard or our OKRs or whatever you call that. And then eventually that should flow through then to the bottom line. So we don't want people doing, for example, like this pitfall of doing projects and counting up, um, like if there's too much focus on cost savings. People will 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 add up all sorts of sometimes you know dubious projections and they'll say, well, uh, our numbers show that our Kaizen program saved ten million dollars this year. And an executive might rightfully ask, well, where where's that flowing through to the bottom line, right? So you know we we we've got to let people focus on uh, improvements that matter to them. Not everything necessarily has a measurable impact, but a lot of improvements will. Like so, cost reduction is fine. But the pitfall um, to avoid is only asking for cost reduction. You've got to let people work on improvements that matter to them. And, and again, like the idea is that we're not implementing things that are wildly expensive. We want to do, you know, there's a, a cliche expression from Toyota and, and, and the lean methodology that says, use your creativity before capital. So part of the brainstorming, if somebody has an expensive idea, we might try to ask, well, is there a more clever way of solving that problem. Can we do a small test of change to reduce some of the risk of people wanting to implement a big expensive solution that has to be perfect, doing a small test of change and 
with one customer or with one part of the organization allows us to test and validate ideas before you know trying to scale it. Yeah, breaking it down to the smallest uh, smallest step, so then you're not investing, like you mentioned, or you're not setting yourself up for failure because it's missing that mark. That makes total total sense. So the other the other aspect of that is that measurement uh, side of things, and there's that old saying, you know, what gets measured gets managed. And in your book, Measure of Success, you talk about how organizations need to adjust their metrics to reduce noise. So how are companies doing that or how should they be doing that? Well, yeah, so there's you know a whole methodology that I was fortunate to learn uh, 25 years ago. Um, there's a, a statistician, Donald Wheeler, um, who was at the University of Tennessee, and he's been an active consultant uh, and author for a long time, um, a methodology that he calls process behavior charts. And it's a way of visualizing business metrics or other performance data. So I think of like, well, let me frame it in terms of like the Kaizen discussion, right? So we're talking about a solution called process behavior charts. And I've written a book uh, about that. And uh, Don Wheeler was kind enough to write uh, the foreword um, for, for that book. The, the, the problem or the issue might be things like relying on two data point comparisons. Customer satisfaction metric is higher than it was last month. Hooray. And then it's lower than the month before and people get upset or they lecture people or they, they demand a root cause analysis and, or, or, you know, things like this, where they may be just overreacting to noise, statistical noise in the performance measure. Um, there, there, are, there are other traps, but, you know, the main thing is looking at more than two data points, looking at 12 or 15 or 20 plotting them visually, right? So in Excel, you you know, it would be called just a line chart, visualizing more data and visually looking for, are there trends? Does it seem like our performance is just fluctuating around a stable average? That's often the case. Uh, or are there points in time where performance has shifted upward or downward? And so process behavior charts, there's a little bit of math involved of basically sort of calculating some guardrails horizontal lines that you would draw on the chart. So you've got your business metric that may be changing or fluctuating or whatever. And then you calculate and draw in what are called lower and upper limits. You calculate and plot the average. And now visually, and you, you, know, you can use a couple of statistical rules where let's say if your baseline was that the customer satisfaction metric was just fluctuating around an average and all the data points were within those calculated limits, you would call that maybe a predictable System That metric is predictable within that range of performance. But then suddenly you see a data point outside of those limits. That's very strong statistical proof that says, hey, something changed, whether it's for the better or for the worse. It could be something that you did as an improvement or it just happened as an external factor. Right. So a quick example, um, the last healthcare organization that I was working with up until the start of the pandemic last year um, had a, a call center. Metric. So uh, patients calling in for scheduling and questions and, and what have you. And one of the metrics was call abandonment rate, the percentage of people who get fed up and hang up. And so that number had been fluctuating around an average. It was pretty stable. It was predictable. It was higher than they wanted it to be. But then that number showed a significant shift downward. We're like now instead of fluctuating around an average of let's call it 5%, it was fluctuating around an average of 2%. Something changed. Was it something that they did or that they could take credit for? No. What changed? COVID. Fewer patients were calling to book appointments because we were staying at home. And so, you know, they, they avoided the trap 
of somebody wanting to pat themselves in the back. And this is where the politics is more complicated than the math of like, look at this great improvement. But they realized like the cause and effect was not anything they did. It was something that happened. And their prediction, I asked them, well, what do you predict will happen when things start to get back to normal? And they're like, the call abandonment rate will probably go back up. And sure enough, it did. You know, but they, they so we, we want to make sure we understand cause and effect relationships in our business, in our organization. If we made a change that was that we predicted was going to reduce um, the call abandonment rate, we would look for statistical evidence on that process behavior chart instead of doing kind of a fishy two data point comparison. Like we implemented this change and the call abandonment rate fell from 5.5 to 3.9. That those two data points could be within the range of the typical noise or fluctuation in the metric. So you want to make sure you're not declaring victory based off of two data points, that you're not fooling yourself inadvertently or intentionally. Um, you know, we can use statistical measures as a way of connecting the dots between our improvement efforts and the measures that matter to our business. Yeah, it makes total sense to zoom out and see a larger, mm-hmm. larger picture instead of, you know, just the the couple of data points like you're mentioning. And then having those guardrails makes a lot of sense because what's the variation? Because mm-hmm. then if you're drastically outside of that or underneath that, then you can, zo- you know, zoom back in and figure out what what changed that. Yeah. Really, really good. Yeah. I mean, if I, if I can, one quick example, and, and I love the way you said zooming out is a great way of stating that. Um, let's say uh, you step on the scale every morning. Here's a good experiment. You've got a scale. And let's say you're happy with your weight. You're not trying to lose weight or gain weight. Step on the scale every morning and write those numbers down and chart it in Excel. And you'll see, you know, maybe with the holidays coming up, you know, we may have a change to our, our system <laughs> of eating more, exercising less. I don't know. But you will see you do not weigh the exact same number every day, especially if your scale's got one decimal point after the weight, right? And you can start to look and see and start understanding your body as a system of what you're putting into it and what you're doing with your body. Uh, That number is going to fluctuate. And you can learn to stop overreacting to every up and down. You may gain eight-tenths of a pound and then lose seven-tenths of a pound. And you start to understand, you know, you've got fluctuations. Don't get too excited about every up or down and understand for you that noise. And then you may go away on a vacation, and this this didn't happen with me last week. But let's say you go away on a vacation, you step on the scale, and now that number's up five pounds. Yeah. That right. could be temporary. Now you're going to make some adjustments to get that back down. You know, um, you, you can start to understand cause and effect between your, your, your actions and your lifestyle and that, that number on the scale. If your weight changes, it could, because, it could be because of something you're doing. Or like, if you don't understand, like, that could be a sign of a medical problem of weight yes. going up, weight going down. You may want to go to the doctor, but you're, you're not going to call the doctor and say, like, oh, you know, I'm down two pounds today. Well, I mean, that, there's lots of physiological reasons why that could be. And then your weight maybe goes back up one and a half pounds the next day. Yeah, that's an amazing example, and because that that will fluctuate, and there's that looking at the that variation, right? If you're looking at the variation, and then it's a cause for alarm, like you said, if there's something outside of that. But it's all inputs and outputs. No mm-hmm. pun intended. But. <laughs> right. I mean, in a hospital, they will talk about patient inputs and outputs. Yeah. So that is a clinical term. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I know. 
all, all within that system, you know, of the self in this case, but, you know, it, uh, apply it to, to an organization as well. It makes total sense. So speaking, speaking of hospitals, a lot of the work that you've done, you know, in, in your past is improving their processes and creating lean operations within, within hospitals. Um, and we spoke a little bit about, about COVID, but how are you seeing, you know, hospital systems navigate the change with COVID, um, since the start of the pandemic? So there, there, there seem to be a couple different camps and approaches. Um, and, you know, and first off, you know, I, I have not been on site with a health system since March of uh, 2020. Um, so a lot of what I'm hearing is, uh, you know, secondhand talking to people I know who work at health systems, that these have been incredibly exhausting, if not demoralizing times for, for people in healthcare. So going forward and trying to recover from that, and we're not out of the woods yet, we're going to have to figure out how to create a workplace that that's more engaging and less frustrating. And for people who are staying in healthcare, because, you know, there's so many people quitting and leaving. Um, and I, and I don't, I, I, I don't blame them for that and I don't walk in their shoes, so I wouldn't even try, but for the people who remain in healthcare, there's going to be a lot to recover from. Um, I don't think we can just fall back to the old normal. I think a new normal, better path forward would be around creating an environment that's more respectful, more engaging, not overworking people to, to help keep the people that, that we still have. But thinking back to, to COVID times, though, the, 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 the two categories, there are sadly some hospitals that have fallen back into the habit or they've never lost the habit of cost cutting. The biggest cost in a hospital system, 60 something percent of cost is labor. So sadly, a lot of hospitals, when revenue is down, um, financial problems are there, they, they, they will cut staff, which can be short-sighted or counterproductive in all sorts of different ways. Um, not to ideal, you know, I'll idealize Toyota a little bit. You know, Toyota doesn't lay off employees. Like if they had supply chain problems right now, like every automaker is dealing with and production is down or during the Great Recession or other times, they will pay employees to do continuous improvement and training and quality improvement and things like that. Um, you know, Toyota has the money in the bank. They've planned for that. You know, uh, a lot of times hospitals don't have the money in the bank. But then there's the second camp of hospitals, the more positive side of things, who have doubled down on lean and continuous improvement during the pandemic. Unprecedented times. We need to be more adaptive and, 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 and agile, tapping into everybody's expertise instead of the executive team trying to dictate everything in a top-down way. You know, I've heard so many reports and in some of my podcasts that I do, I've interviewed hospital executives who say, you know, the years of investment we spent building that culture of continuous improvement really paid off during the pandemic because we were able to be more adaptive. People were more resilient because they were involved. They're driving change, not just being a victim um, of change. Those are the organizations that I, I really admire and appreciate. Those who have, um, you know, doubled down on their investment in their people and their continuous improvement capabilities and the organization, you know, ends up better off for it as well. Yeah. Investment in your people, I can't be understated because like it's, that's the basis of any successful business and mm -hmm. culture are mm -hmm. the people that show up. And I like how you mentioned that they're involved in the process of improvement. Like it's not just a top down thing, like they can spur innovation and make change from, from their, their day-to-day -day work. 
Um, really great. So, you know, we talked a bit about all the stuff that you've got going on. So what, what's your secret on managing your day-to-day? You mentioned you can book me, which helps you mm-hmm. save time on the scheduling side of things. But how are you staying organized outside of that? And how are you how are you able to stay productive? Yeah. So, like you know, you, you can book me is a hugely important tool. You know, I've learned how to set up multiple calendars that are all driven off of the same Google calendar for uh, visibility. But you know, as meetings drop into my calendar, they're clearly labeled. Here's a pre-call for this podcast with this person. Um, here's an episode of my favorite mistake that I'm scheduling. Here's a meeting, an inquiry about consulting or speaking. So looking at looking at the calendar, instead of just seeing meeting, 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 or name, 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 you know, that, that helps me mentally plan my day. You can book me, populates a lot of the stuff on my calendar. Um, the workflows of generating uh, Zoom meetings and different uh, reminder emails and follow-up emails that, that are automated based on those different types of calendar appointments, um, those, those are some things that, that are really useful. You know, I try to limit the amount of time I spend on, on social media. And one way I've done that is um, basically deleting apps off of my phone. And, and sort of trying to limit, like, I'll use my web browser on the computer, but I don't need to be nervously fidgeting through my phone. Um, so maybe that's that's a productivity tip that I've tried embracing recent years. I, you know, I, don't know if I, I don't know if I have any magic tricks. I, I'm not an inbox zero guy. Many of the, many of the people at Kinexus are really into that methodology. Um, I don't know if I have any other you know, particular methodologies or frameworks that, that I use. But I mean, I'll give credit to uh, my friend, Dan Markovitz, who's written a couple of books on applying lean concepts to personal productivity. I uh, encourage people go, go Google uh, Dan Markovitz and his books. And um, one, one tip from him is to live in your calendar instead of living in your inbox. What's the default application that you have sort of in your face um, on, on your computer? Um, having the calendar in front of you, I think, is um, a better way of tracking time and, and not being constantly distracted by emails. But I, I like anybody, I can do better um, with my own productivity. But uh, again, like I, I've, I've blogged about and I shared with you guys on social media, um, You Can Book Me is a huge time saver. I didn't measure the before and after. How many hours a week was I spending scheduling meetings? How many miscommunications we're being made about timing, time zones. You can book me handles that beautifully. Time zone back and forth. So I, I bet I know qualitatively it's been a huge benefit to me, and it's a it's a time saver and a stress reliever. So so that's that's been great. Yeah, and and as you mentioned, just living within your your calendar because you have so many things going on. And it's like what what's my day look like? What do I need to prepare for? How do I stay focused on that? And everything fueling together and, and building out solutions with different tools like you can book me or helping helping keep that calendar up to date. Um, and, you know, one of your many podcasts, the My Favorite Mistake, you allow your guests to just open up about the mistakes that they've made. So I wanted to ask you what which was one of your biggest mistakes from your life and what did you learn from it? Yeah, so My Favorite Mistake um you know, generally, uh, you know, we, we, we ask people to talk about workplace mistakes as opposed to broader life mistakes. Sometimes there's an overlap um, in that. Um, you know, so, you know, a favorite mistake is one that I think, you know, influences us in some way. We learned from it. It's a mistake we've learned to avoid repeating. It's a mistake that led to some unexpected 
you know, benefit. Um, you know, so one, one story I've shared before, you know, going back, this is like 2004, uh, the last manufacturing company I worked for, I was still not, I had not cured myself of the engineer trap. I'm an industrial engineer, uh, undergrad of a, a master's degree in engineering and an MBA. There was still that trap of like, I need to be the expert. I need to have the answers. I'm going to calculate the right answer. I'm going to have the right answer. And so I wasn't as good. I think now I'm a better experimentalist. I put less pressure on myself to have the answer instead of having, well, here's something I could try. Here's something I could test. And what what I wasn't good at then was engaging other people. Now, some of that was my own practice. Some of it was the culture I was a part of that was still more of a us, them, salaried, hourly, engineers and managers come up with answers, employees are just executing things. Um, but I made some mistakes where, you know, I, uh, you know, developed some solutions to problems that were too, too much of, of my own, not engaging people, which, you know, and having people participate in ideas makes the ideas better and it helps people buy in to change. And so if coming up with what you think is a great solution and then convincing people to go along, like, no, that's that's too late. Um, so I've, I've shared examples like that where, um, yeah, I sort of reflect on some of these projects I was involved in earlier in my career. If I could go back in time, I would do it differently. Um, I've, I've, I can't do that. So I've tried to be better now going forward. I As, as a consultant, I, I won't allow myself to be put in a position where somebody wants me to come in and be the expert and tell them how to change their process. I'm like, well, no, I'm not, that's not effective or it's not sustainable if I could come up with the quote unquote right solution. So anyway, I think sharing stories like this maybe give some comfort to people who are newer in a field, younger in their career to recognize we all make mistakes. Don't put pressure on yourself to be perfect. People aren't successful because they've avoided making mistakes. I think of anything the podcast illustrates people who are really successful, acknowledge their mistakes. They reflect on them. They don't beat themselves up, right? They don't dwell on it, but they learn from it and they move forward in a more positive way. So I, I tried sharing stories about that personally. Um, I, I have a habit now you know, with people I work with now. Maybe it's annoying. I will freely admit, hey, today I made this mistake and let me let me tell you what I was thinking. Let me tell you why that turned out to be wrong. Let's learn from it. let Let's 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 move forward. So I think there's something to be said for sharing mistakes. I'm not really anybody's boss, quote unquote. But I think if you're in a workplace, when you have a leader who has the humility and the openness to share mistakes, that does a lot to help create what we then might describe as a culture of continuous improvement. Yeah. And having just that vulnerability to say, hey, this is a mistake. But like you mentioned, and talking about continuous improvement, be like, what have we learned from it? So it's it's never, you never win or lose, it's you win and learn, right? As long as you're keep, keep learning things, but, and not making the same mistake over again, too. That's really, really awesome. So, so what's next for you? What are you, what are you excited about? I know you just got back from a, from a busy trip, so probably no trips, but what's exciting, what's exciting coming up? I am scheduled for the first time in the middle of December to go uh, teach a class in person for the first time since March, 2020. I've been doing so much Zoom time. Uh, a lot of virtual stuff, but I'm excited that um, this class that I had taught 
virtually a couple times, I get to now return back to um, kind of a healthcare uh, classroom, conference room type environment. Um, so I'm excited about that. And, and, and knock on wood, that still uh, happens. I'm optimistic, you know, as we go into 2022 of being, I'm excited to get back out on the road. Like I've enjoyed being home a lot over these last 18 months. And, you know, I've taken a little bit of a hit business-wise, but it's survivable. Um, Again, I mentioned I have a wife with a great corporate career and that provides us a sense of stability that, you know, a lot of people aren't fortunate to have. Um, But I'm, I'm looking forward to, you know, striking the right balance of, yes, I would like to be able to travel for work that's fulfilling and places that are interesting to go to without being on the road all the time. That's one thing I'm looking forward to figuring out more. Yeah, sounds sounds great. A big year ahead for you um, of navigating all of that. And for everybody listening too, all, all that you've hopefully taken away from Kaizen, the continuous improvement and everything there. So where where can folks go to learn more about everything you're working on and check out, you know, all of the the books that you've you've written? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for that. Uh, my website's markgraben.com. Uh, G-R-A-B as in Bravo, A-N, like November, markgraben.com. That's got links to uh, different books and podcasts. My main blog is a different website, leanblog.org. Um, I'm pretty easy to find on LinkedIn. I think there's one other Mark Graben in the country who is uh, an educator in California so, um, You're not but him. if you, if you, <laughs> if you just, I'm not him, but if you Google Mark Graben, you'll, you'll, you'll find me. Maybe this other Mark Graben's happy to not be found. I, who knows, but, um, I'm pretty easy to find online, uh, or again, markgraben.com. Yeah. We'll throw everything up on the blog as well, Mark. So thank, thank you so much for taking the time to, to fill us in on everything that you've been working sure. on and, and educating us on Kaizen and lean operations and all that good stuff. So uh, we appreciate you being on Get More Done, and we hope you have a good rest of your day and a good rest of the year, too. Yeah, well, thank you. And you know, thank you to um, the whole team at You Can Book Me for helping me get more done. And um, I, I really do appreciate your service and, and what you do. It's great. Awesome. Thanks for being a customer, Mark. You're great. All right. Thanks, Ben. Take care. Thank you for listening to Get More Done. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can visit getmoredone.youcanbook.me. Reach out to us on Twitter at youcanbookme or visit us on the forum, forum.youcanbook.me. I'll catch you on the next episode. Cheers.